and welcome to Misinformation, the podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at pub quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Oh man, one day we'll get that. One day, yeah. <laughs> so um, this is a Lauren episode. So I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to quick do a. Uh, I've learned some more information from my last episode Ooh. on space. So as it turns out, space has a smell. Did you know what? this? Is it, I mean I thought it was like a vacuum. So it I is a vacuum. So there's no a, air in space. Yeah. So there's no like scent. But okay. apparently, um, astronauts on the ISS when they come out of the airlock, mm-hmm. there is a distinct smell of space, and apparently it smells like. Can you guess? Um, hmm, like uh, meteors. <laughs> yes, uh, maybe like ozone. Yes, ozone. actually, it is. It's mm-hmm. ozone. It smells like ozone. Mm-hmm. So like rain, wet grass, rain sure. smell, and also uh, it has been described as um, burnt steak Ooh. or like soldering. So like hot okay. metal like smell. Hot metal. Mm. Yeah, and I guess it's uh, they don't like it. Like it's unpleasant. <laughs> so space, as it turns out, how's the smell? Is and stinky. It's not and it's not it's great. not a nice smell so it's like they get the smell because it's like on their cl- on their like a- clothes uniform out- yeah their space outfit, suits costume what <laughs> yeah space, space suits costume space costume yeah oh that's really interesting yeah isn't that cool yeah. and it gets in like like it gets it seeps into everything it smells oh. like that isn't that weird wow yeah it's interesting to think about a, a smell that doesn't exist yeah right how does that work yeah to get a scientist in here to figure out what that means very interesting so so speaking of uh space costumes yes space costumes (laughs) (laughs) um today i'll be talking about um fashion and specifically the term haute couture and what that means So um, you've heard the term haute couture. I have. Or yes. couture. Yes. And uh, you and I both grew up in the uh, the late 90s, early 2000s, where juicy couture was a hot, yes. hot thing. Oh, uh, the the uh, velour sweatsuit oh. era. What mm. a what a treasure. Yeah. What a great time for women's fashion. So juicy couture, you may be surprised mm. to find out, is not exactly couture. Oh. Really? I know. Shock of shocks. <laughs> so the term haute couture mm-hmm. or uh, haute couture, which I will just not be as pretentious as that and just refer to it as haute couture, <laughs> is um, actually high-end fashion that is constructed by hand from start to finish, made from high quality, expensive, mm-hmm. often unusual fabric and sewn with extreme attention to detail and finished by the most experienced and capable sewers, Ooh. often using time-consuming hand-executed techniques. So haute couture in French uh, translate loosely to high fashion. Yes. Um, and uh, it refers to not only fashion, but sewing uh, or needlework mm. um, and refers to any kind of hand making of clothing items um, in spirit. So right. there is, it's a, it's a legal term and there mm-hmm. are legal restrictions to them. And uh, the, uh, in France, the term haute couture is protected by law and is defined by the, here we go, <laughs> uh, Chambre de Commerce et d'Industrie de Paris, which is based in Paris, or the uh, Chamber of Commerce and Industry in Paris. And the Chambre Syndicale de la Haute Couture is defined as the regulating commission that determines which fashion houses are eligible to be true haute couture houses. Ooh. So the Chambre Syndicale mm-hmm. um they are the ones who nominate fashion houses and fashion designers to be oh, labeled. Okay, to be put up into this echelon. Yes, echelon yeah. of haute couture. Mm-hmm. So, um, and also it runs a uh, a school that actually trains dressmakers and sewers and embroiderers. And a lot of these people are women. A yes. lot of them are dressmakers. And they are um, elderly French women who are housed in like the upper floors of a fashion house and they just... An atelier. And an atelier, very good. And it means they just, attic. Oh, it does, French, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't know that. Um, it's called the L'École. L'École. L'école, l'école uh, de la Chambre Syndicale de la Couture. So, thank you. See, I uh, did not take French. I was not a rich kid like Julia. Oh, so... <laughs> 
<laughs> I took Spanish in Our high school. Our options were French and Spanish. Oh, okay, same. <laughs> and I just got put into the Spanish uh, classes. So my, forgive my um, French accent. We'll be talking about Italians later and I'll be better at that. So they have these like... Uh, these groups that kind of safeguard the, yes. the language. Um, Fran- France is very well known for that. Yes. Um, they don't want you to um, have like first names that aren't approved. Yeah. Uh, they are very controlling of their food and their wine. And like we talked about with prohibition, like mm-hmm. you can't call something champagne unless exactly. it comes from champagne and it meets these criteria and things like that. So the French are still very... <laughs> rule followers on uh, on a lot of like kind of um uh upper society ideas yeah yeah absolutely and it's it's interesting because you know it really pisses the french off (laughs) that so many people are using like haute couture so like oh this uh, this steak is so haute couture like it's just everything is haute couture because it's not it's not regulated universal, like right. internationally. Mm-hmm. So an American company like Juicy Couture can use mm-hmm. Juicy Couture. Um, so it can be very confusing. Um, so uh, couturiers often have, uh, they, they show twice a year. Mm-hmm. They do a spring show and they do a fall show. Mm-hmm. And those are January and July respectively. And they show in Paris. To be a couturier, you have to not only have your atelier mm-hmm. in France, but they also have to show in Paris. Ooh, um, I didn't there know that. are uh, also regulations uh, for the specific rules, which include design made to order for private clients with one or more fittings, have a workshop atelier mm-hmm. in Paris that employs at least 15 staff members full time. Okay. They have to have at least 20 full time technical people in at least one workshop atelier Whoa. and present a collection of at least 50 original designs to the public every fashion season of both day and evening garments. And um, one of the traditional things is um, there's always a, when you see a fashion show, mm-hmm. Um, also the 50 original designs that has been limited now. So okay. now it's, it, you have to have at least 25 designs. That's still a lot. It's a lot, especially since these are handmade mm-hmm. fitted to the models and then presumably never made again. <laughs> so that's something we can get into, but, um, the, you have the fashion show, mm-hmm. give it a dupe, the, these girls and boys are walking down. Um, but the final look is always known as the wedding dress. Oh, I and that is that. traditional. Um, that is not really like rigu- rigorously kept up. Sure. Um, and there are still some couturiers or even um, ready to wear mm-hmm. companies that will have a final wedding gown. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of couturiers today and even just in general, they have two sets of there's the couture, so mm-hmm. the haute couture, and then they have something called ready to wear in English, yes. which is known as pret. A porte, pret a porte, pret a porte, which is um, a little bit more commercial. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as handmade. They can use um, like a industrial sure. techniques yeah. and that kind of thing, and th- that's the stuff that's going to make their money. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, haute couture, the couturier Charles Frederick Worth is widely considered to be the father of haute couture as it is known today. Mm. Although um, the designer Rose Bertin was the uh, personal dressmaker and could, you could call her a couturier okay. of Marie Antoinette. Oh, yeah. So Rose Bertin was essentially like the first couturier dressmaker, someone who made high fashion clothing Just for like a specific person. Lots of corsets. Just a ton of corsets. And oh my God, the beading is so lush. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> side note, the other day, <laughs> You know, I was listening to our, our past episodes <laughs> and I, you know, I listened to like three times and, you know, just to make sure that everything sounds yeah, good. We're not inflating the numbers. No, we're not folks. inflating the numbers at yeah. all. Uh, and I, you know how you always hate the sound of your own voice. Mm-hmm. I don't hate the sound of my own voice. I don't, but I have discovered that <laughs> my voice is very like indulgent. <laughs> like my, my voice sounds like I'm enjoying a delicious bun bun. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a very sibilant S and I have a very indulgent voice, which I think is very appropriate for, for this, this particular topic. topic. Yeah. yeah. So very indulgent. I'm like the Sydney Green Street of podcasting. Anyway. <clears throat> so Charles Frederick Worth, he was actually born mm-hmm. in England, uh, born and born Lincolnshire. Ooh. 
Um, he made his mark in the fresh French fashion industry because he revolutionized how dressmaking had been previously perceived. Mm-hmm. Uh, he made it so that the dressmaker became the artist of garnishment. Oh, so so he was the less first like utilitarian. Yes. And more a uh, designer, more mm-hmm. an artiste. So he was the first, what you could call a fashion designer. Wow. So he created one-of-a-kind designs to please some of his titled or wealthy customers, but he is best known for preparing a portfolio of designs Mm. that were shown on live models, so the first fashion Uh show, at what he called his House of Worth. And House of Worth became the name of his fashion house. How is Worth spelled? Uh, W-O-R-T-H. Yep. And um, House of Worth became very popular in America. Mm. Um, in fact, he was American, wealthy Americans were kind of his bread and butter for mm. a while. Um, so he was, oh my goodness, I didn't even give an, uh, a date for that. So Rose Bertin was the 17th century, of course, because of Marie, um, Antoinette. Marie Antoinette. And then Charles Frederick paint. Worth was in 1868. So he was like mid to late 19th century. Okay. So... Um, he was also kind of a dandy. He would dress in like a little bit older styles, like 1840s, because Ooh. 1840s is like fancier. Um, Re- Regency? Yeah, a little bit. Mm. Regency is like 1830. Oh, okay. So he was kind of a, a personality. So his wealthy clients really loved working with him because he was just like fabulous. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, he can... Have he, another cummerbund. Yeah, exactly. He had... Um, so he would he would have like his little fashion shows, and clients would select um, a model of mm-hmm. a ga- of a garment, and then they would uh, choose specific colors and fabrics, and then he would make a duplicate duplicate garment tailor made okay. by his workshop. Um, and he combined individual tra- tailoring with a standardization more characteristic of the ready to wear clothing industry, which was also developing during this time period. Mm-hmm. So following in his footsteps were, and these are some French um, fashion houses that were in existence at the time or followed him very closely, um, some of which still exist today and Mm -hmm. some of which do not. So first were, um, I'm going to fuck this up, (laughs) Calosaurs, Calosaurs, which is uh, the Calo sisters, Uh, Jean Petot, Poiret, Vionnet, Fortuny, who was, um, I'm honestly, I think I'm going to do a second episode of this because there's so <laughs> much information. It was like killing me. Uh, Jean Lavin, uh, of course, Coco Chanel, of course. uh, Beyonce. Boucher, Elsa Scaparelli, uh, Cristobal Balenciaga, and of course, mm. my favorite and yours, Christian Dior. So some of these fashion houses still exist today under the leadership of modern designers because the houses existed and the fashion designer who was the head mm-hmm. um, changed after the initial right. person. Um, so in the 1960s, a group of young designer designers who had trained under men like Dior and Balenciaga mm-hmm. left those established couture houses and opened their own establishments. So there was like a, like a tree sure. yeah. situation going. So the most successful of these young designers were Yves Saint Laurent, mm, yes. who followed in Dior's footsteps after he died, Pierre Cardin, uh, Andre Courage, uh, Ted Lapidou, and Emmanuel Ungaro. And actually, I should mention her, Japanese native and Paris-based, Hane Mori. She was successful in establishing her own line. Um, she did uh, the costumes for Madame Butterfly. Oh, yeah. Um, she was the first Asian woman to be uh, a member of the Chambre Syndicale. Oh, very neat. To be named in it. So um, a lot of these, like uh, Pierre Cardin, and Christian Lacroix and others, um, they were originally couturiers, but due to financial issues, they started licensing their name to different things. Oh, okay. And that was uh, more or less successful with some people. So mm-hmm. Chanel licenses a lot of things. You can buy a pair of Chanel sunglasses for a fairly reasonable price. Mm-hmm. Um, you can buy Chanel makeup. There's all sorts of things. Uh, but Pierre Cardin went under because he licensed to everything. Yeah, like JC Penny yeah. selling Pierre Cardin. Exactly. Right? Like, you know, don't whore yourself out <laughs> like that, Pierre. So then he went under because he actually uh, like kind of outsold like himself saturated. kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly. So Pierre Cardin was no longer like high fashion. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like, really, JC Penny khakis? <laughs> so um, 
today modernized couture shows are not designed uh, and made to be sold. Rather, they're exactly what they are displayed for for show. Mm. So a lot of these things, um, and a lot of people ask me this. I full disclosure, I have a background in <laughs> in women's uh, women's fashion collection. Probably should have mentioned that. Yeah, beginning. I should. I know a little bit about this. <laughs> um, so a lot of people ask me, like, well, why did these people like kill themselves and use very expensive materials mm-hmm. and pay these people to do this and use very high end models and all this stuff? If it's only going to be shown one time, exactly, it's ephemeral. But the whole point of it is um, not only is it art, like it's mm-hmm. very high minded. Um, it's instead of being constructed for the purpose of selling and making money, they're made to further pr- the publicity and they're mm-hmm. also trend setting. Sure. Mm-hmm. So it's perception and understanding of brand image. So you can say something is very Chanel and you know, if you've, and then I think of like a boucle knit. Yes. Um, suit. Yes. Oh my God. For women. See, you know, you know what's up. <laughs> so, that for a lot of these fashion houses, especially today, custom clothing is no longer the main source of income. Okay, um, they it costs much more to make than it than it earns through direct sales. Right. So it's like when it, they're interviewing celebrities on the red carpet, and they're like, "Who are you wearing?" Yeah, and it's like they had a custom dress made by one of these fashion houses, and and then in that way, it's kind of like advertising. Exactly. Yes. I mean fashion houses even chanel will fight with any other fashion house to get a famous Mm -hmm. person's body inside one of their dresses even if they have to like muck it up a little bit shorten the sleeves make it shorter like Mm -hmm. whatever um because when they say i'm wearing maison margiela everyone's like oh my god maison margiela i need to see (laughs) so um yeah and then then people because you obviously can't afford that beautiful maison margiela that um (laughs) adele is wearing you can though go out and get yourself a Maison Margiela bag oh, yes. for eight hundred dollars, which is too much money to spend on a handbag. Right. Um, but that's what that you they can make do their that. Money on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like when uh, people go to Tiffany's in New York City. Uh, it's it's the most popular item at Tiffany's is the a deck of playing cards because that's it's like twenty five bucks is the cheapest thing. It still says Tiffany on it. They know they're getting tourists in the door yep. who aren't necessarily going to buy their jewelry, but they can sell a bunch of twenty five dollar yeah. playing cards to kind of you know keep the lights on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know they have a problem. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> so um, so I'm just going to get into three fashion okay. designers, famous fashion fashionistas fashionistas um and uh just kind of give a little background because these are the most so some of the most influential fashion designers so the first is uh kello sir kello sir okay kello sir opened in 1895 uh in uh tebu in paris france it was operated by the four uh, Kello sisters, Marie Kello Gerber, Martha Kello Bertrand, Regina Kello Tennyson Chantrell, and Josephine Kello Cremont. Um, the sisters were born in France to a Russian family. Hmm. And the eldest sister, Marie, was trained in dressmaking, having earlier worked for Rodnitz and Company, prominent Parisian dressmakers. And they were all taught by their mother, a lace maker. So their lace making abilities kind of... Um, wow. Like furthered them a little bit farther yeah, than other that's people. So specialized. Yes, it's very specialized. And even by then, lace making as like a as a craft was kind of dying out. Mm-hmm. So um, the sisters began working with antique laces and ribbons to enhance blouses and lingerie, and their success led to an expansion into other clothing. And in 1900, they were featured at the Paris World's Fair. Uh, that year they had a staff of 200 and did 2 million francs in sales. Jeez. And by 1901, they had tripled their workforce and doubled their sales. Whoa. So, um, their day dresses were well received at the 1915 universal exhibition in San Francisco. And in 1916, Henry Bendel of Bendel's was the largest buyer of, uh, Calo Soares in New York city. That same so that, year. Is that just like high necked dresses with a lot of like, lace on the bib and yes so this is this is the time of um uh so 1916 is a little bit late but around this time there was a lot of these um it was called a it was like an s shape so mm-hmm. if you looked at a woman from the side it was like a serpentine s she had a mm-hmm. big uni like big bosom and then a teeny little waist <laughs> yeah. and then a big old butt 
So that was like the hotness. Like yeah. if you did not have a uniboob, you were nobody. <laughs> but because of this shape, you had a lot of fabric that you could work with. Right. And so you could really come up with some very beautiful, like especially like you said, the mm-hmm. bib, like that whole frontis piece of your big uniboob is a great place <laughs> to put all sorts of like beads and baubles. And what's going on with the bustle in the back? The bustle in the back. Oh, yeah. Like you've got your cage crinoline and all that stuff. It's just ugh, just covered in lace and gorgeousness. Yeah. Could you smuggle things? Absolutely. I'm sure people have done that. Yeah. Okay. And there were actually a lot of during this time period, there were a lot of um, like cartoons making fun of how mm-hmm. big these women's asses were. <laughs> and their hats are really big. The hats were yeah. a big deal. So um, do not go to the theater. Mm, do not. So <laughs> so uh in 1916, American Vogue dubbed the sisters the Three Fates and declared them, quote, foremost among the powers that rule the destinies of a woman's life and increase the income of France, unquote. Oh um, so in 1920, uh, Marta Kahlo Bertrand suddenly died and the widowed Regina Kahlo Tennyson Chantrell <laughs> retired to care for her son. Hmm. And then Marie Kahlo Gerber single-handedly ran the house uh, for the next seven years and i think um so there's marie marta regina and josephine and josephine killed herself in like 1898 so she didn't get to see like their incredible success right so um so they they were very successful and marie kind of ran the house very well Uh, in the 1920s uh uh established branches in nice Byritz, Bayritz, Buenos Aires, and London. Bayritz, Bayritz, B I A R R I T Z. Bayritz, Bayritz. Is that a it's place? Spain. Oh, it's in Spain. Great. So they were all I over. Uh, January, <laughs> January, nineteen twenty-two. Article in Ladies' Home Journal claimed that um, quote Kello probably has the most rich clients than any other establishment in the world. They come from South America, from South Africa, and as far east as Japan. Mm. And they were women these were ladies this. not only were they, yeah awesome. they were women who granted did have a little bit of money starting off mm-hmm. um but they single-handedly did this yeah. this was their business that's awesome yeah it's amazing considering the time period so in 1928 pierre gerber marie Caio gerber's son took over the business um after she died but uh, he could not survive in the highly competitive market because yeah. that's when, especially a in, lot the, was in the 1920s, yeah. there was a lot of um, fashion houses. Well, there were some big ones. No, well, the rich Americans uh, didn't have any booze to spend their money on. Yeah, anymore. exactly. So, so they're going to spend it on fashion. Change channel, rechannel. Their yeah, exactly. Their <laughs> efforts. So in 1937, the house of Kello uh, closed and it was absorbed into the house of Calvé, Marie Louis Calvé under the Kello label. But um, World War II made matters difficult mm-hmm. in France, and similar to what happened with the House of Vienna in 1939, Calvé and the Kello label finally closed in 1952. Mm-hmm. So, the much like um, the uh, much like 9/11 in 2001, World War II really shut down a lot of fashion houses right. because when there is something dramatic happening in the world, mm-hmm. a lot of conflict and a lot of war. Um, People don't want to spend their money on pretty things. Yeah, they want to. It feels frivolous it in does. the face of what they're, yeah, dealing with. And a lot of the fashion houses in 2001 took a hit. Mm. So, um, now we move to Coco Chanel. Ah, Gabrielle. Way. Born in 1883 to an unwed mother, Gabrielle Bonheur Chanel was sent to an orphanage at 12 after her mother died. Sounds familiar. Mm. Uh, <laughs> it's very Dickens. Um, she learned to sew at this orphanage. Uh, it was a Catholic orphanage. More on that later. In her late teens and early 20s, Gabrielle began singing in cabarets around Paris. Um, she thought she wanted to be an actress, mm-hmm. so she was kind of trying to get her name out there. She gained the nickname Coco, either from the title of a popular song she sang frequently, which was called Coco Rico. That's uh, like what a, the sound that a rooster makes oh coco rico um or possibly and this is where my money is on from the french word for kept woman which is cocotte mm. yeah and that, more on th- that has a lot of uh connotations yeah there's some meaning in there well you'll see why <laughs> so <laughs> so and this is what the wikipedia article said and i just oh, this is such a great quote i had to do it word for word as a cafe entertainer, Chanel radiated a juvenile allure that tantalized the military habitués of the cabaret. I know. 
At 23, Coco became the mistress of a young French ex-Calvary officer and the wealthy textile heir, Etienne Balsam, who set her up in his chateau. Yeah. textile heir. Yeah, textile heir. Isn't that interesting? So there, she lived lived in the lap of luxury, Mm -hmm. never wanted for anything. He showered her with dresses and jewels, pearls, food, little doggies, everything you could possibly think in luxury. So... She liked to keep busy because she was a, an orphan and mm-hmm. had been really, you know, hustling since like age 12. So she, she started making hats for Balsan's female friends. Um, and because she could sew and she was a good embroiderer and um, she set the, the fashion world on fire because she dressed simply and almost boyishly. She wore her hair short. Mm. Um, she wore tiny little boater hats, which are usually worn for men. She, um, her boyish look was uh, labeled garçon and um, she gained the attention of the fashionable elite by being that way. Also, she um, would like spend all her time outside because she loved riding horses oh, sure. and playing tennis and she would get suntans mm. because, oh, yeah, Mon Dieu. I know, which was considered like um, low class mm-hmm. to have dark skin, but because she was so fashionable that suddenly people were like oh, i'm so pale like i need and that continues to today so we can blame coco chanel for skin cancer just fyi <laughs> also for the color orange yes. that my body was in the early 2000s right thanks a lot Jurgen. chanel jurgen that jurgen's um <laughs> yes. self-tanner smell just like haunts it's, my dreams i can smell it now <laughs> god that was so bad i i would do only my legs <laughs> because my legs were like ghostly blue white and so it was just like blue orange. It was so bad. Oh my God. Why didn't anyone stop me? So, so in 1908, Chanel began an affair with one of Belson's friends. His name was Captain Arthur Edward Capel. His nickname was Boy. Yes, he was uh, American, I believe. And um, he was a polo player and he was, uh, you know, just like a man about town. He was rich and he was handsome and he was a little bit younger than her. And um, she said, in later years, Chanel reminisced of this time in her life. She said, quote, two gentlemen were out bidding for my hot little body. I know, oh right? Goodness. Think about that in a French accent. What two, about them? Two gentlemen were out bidding Half for my hot triangles. little body. <laughs> I know. She, she was a piece of work, can I tell you? <laughs> Yikos. So... Uh, Capel was a wealthy member of the English upper class. Sorry, was not American. He was English. Mm. He installed Chanel in an apartment in Paris and financed her first shop. So in uh, 1913, Chanel opened a boutique, a boutique in Deauville, financed by Arthur Capel, mm. uh, where she introduced deluxe casual clothes suitable for leisure and sport. Um, the fashions were constructed from uh, previously humble fabrics such as jersey and tricot. Right. She was the first... To like make Jersey, yeah, like a, a thing, a good fabric, yeah, because um, apparently that those were both primarily used for men's underwear, <laughs> and it was cheap, so she could use it, and she knew that it would drape beautifully because mm-hmm. she was very used to textiles. So um, she very soon after, like, just people went absolutely crazy. She was the inventor of the little black dress, ah, uh, LBD, LBD, everybody for you men out there listening, <laughs> exactly. So her boyish look, this kind of like straight busless buttless like boyish androgynous look was her doing and um after she received her couturier license she lit the fashion world on fire uh after her simple designs were adopted by the fashionable flappers of the 1920s so it was Mm. definitely a right place right Right time time. kind of situation Mm -hmm. so um unfortunately by 1935 that style seemed to disappear overnight and Chanel's hold on the fashion world was threatened, especially by her chief rival, Elsa Scaparelli, who, can I tell you, Chanel hated this woman. It's so funny. She's She was a, Chanel was kind of a bitch. And Scaparelli, as far as I can tell, did not like throw any shade Chanel's way, but Coco was, mm-hmm. she really hated this girl. So regardless, in 1939, at the beginning of World War II, Chanel closed her shops. Mm-hmm. And uh, she maintained her apartment situated above the Couture House at 31 Rue de Cambon. Cambon. Mm-hmm. She um, claimed that it was not a time for fashion because it, of the war. She was not wrong. Yeah. And during the German ap- occupation, Chanel resided at the Hotel Ritz. So um, as it turns out, that was also a noteworthy place of residence for upper echelon German mm-hmm. military. 
So she had a romantic liaison with Baron Hans Gunther von Dinklage. He was a German <laughs> diplomat in Paris and former Prussian army officer and attorney general who had been an operative in military intelligence since 1920. Oh my huh. gosh. What does that sound like? Nazis. <laughs> Nazis. So uh, he spent a lot of time with her at the Ritz. So um, she was definitely thought to be a Nazi sympathizer. Mm. And actually in 2011, there was a book that was published that said, oh, she was also definitely an agent for the Nazis. Oh, is that man. awful? She was also. Oh, yeah. Well, no, it gets worse. <laughs> so she was also a uh, vocal anti-Semite. Oh, thanks to her being raised in a very Catholic orphanage that like really drilled that into her. And ironically enough, she was a homophobe. (laughs) I know she, she once said something like, Oh, you know, gay men, they're so annoying. They, they just want to be ladies and they're ugly ladies. So, and then she said something really shady, like, but I find them so charming. Um, (laughs) so they want me to make clothes for them. Yeah. Mm. Isn't that sweet? So, um, because of her Nazi sympathizing, um, sh- there were a lot of rumors uh, and she and Dinklage were exiled to Switzerland for eight years because of those rumors um, after the war. I so Biritz is in Switzerland. Sorry. Oh, just no. came to me. Please. It's okay. So Biritz just a, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> remember if you everyone. cared about the thing we said five minutes yeah. ago, no, please. We're fact checking. Yeah. Got to do fact checking as we go. Uh, so in 1953, upon returning to France from Switzerland, Coco uh, found the fashion business enamored of the new look. Mm. Uh, the new look, which I will describe later, it was um, <laughs> was by Christian Dior. Ah, uh, yes. It was a complete revolution. It was revolutionary, this, this style. And it's still to this day, if you see a picture of the new look, you're like, oh, damn, that looks so good. <laughs> so... <clears throat> She began rebuilding her legacy through the production of high-end costume jewelry, tweed oh, yes. suits, which you mentioned mm-hmm. before, uh, quilted leather handbags. So the black quilted oh, yes. leather handbag with, with the, the gold the chain. chain. Mm-hmm. That was not early Chanel. That was later Chanel. Okay. So um, Chanel had kind of like two time periods. So mm-hmm. her early stuff was like boyish, little black dress, jersey, easy, cool, comfortable. Um, and then uh, later, her after the war... Um, her whole thing was uh, very uh, ladylike. Mm-hmm. So little ladylike suits and leather handbags mm-hmm. and tiny little pillbox hats and that kind of thing. And of oh, course her perfumes. Yeah, she became hat. a perfume person. Um, perfumier. A perfumier. So um, Chanel number no. five was something that was, uh, it was in 1921. Mm-hmm. And uh, the rumor is that, uh, so there are two reasons there are two like stories as to why she called it chanel number five okay one was that a fortune teller told her that her uh lucky number was number five so that's why she did that um the other was and i believe this (laughs) was that um she was given a bunch of perfume samples and the sample (laughs) number five was the one she liked the most so that Uh, that story is not as fun no it's not but that's that makes more sense right (laughs) um the bottle the shape of the bottle that beautiful Mm -hmm. like like heavy glass square thing Mm -hmm. which is so iconic was actually uh based on a flask that boy capel would carry around with him and she just loved the shape of it so much that she used that as the design so there's not like a chanel number one no there's not a chanel number one there was a chanel number nine i believe but don't there is some that are, there are i know there's like a 20 and there's like a yeah there's a couple numbered hmm. ones that came later interesting um that i don't think survived to this day okay. but um so there was her perfumes mm. so um ladylike became the rule at chanel uh and uh, uh and she like rose again to the top of the fashion yes. world and remained there essentially until uh january 10th 1971 after returning from a walk with her friend Claude Bayenne, Coco Chanel died on her bed in the Hotel Ritz where she had lived for the past 30 years. Her last words to her maid, Celine, were, you see, this is how you die. <laughs> oh my gosh. She's like, take note. See this? Look at how glamorous I am. This is how you die, bitch. This is how you die. Um, and now to my favorite pre, pre-1950 designer. Okay. Elsa Schiaparelli. Schiaparelli. This girl was the tits. So, born in Rome in 1890 to an aristocratic mother and a genius scholar. Her father was 
loved like ancient history and things. Um, Elsa was a dreamy child who wrote poetry influenced by ancient philosophers. And when her parents sent her to boarding school, she went on a hunger strike until they they brought her back. (laughs) So so she was a little dramatic, like most Italians. Fled to London to avoid an arranged marriage with a Russian like oligarch that she did not love. She fell in with a con man. His name was Willem de Curler, but he had tons of aliases. Mm-hmm. She attended his lecture on psychic powers, and she was absolutely 100% enamored with him. They got engaged the day after they met, and they married in 1914, and Elsa actually helped him in his con games. Like, she was kind of his booker and promoter. She would, yeah. like, I don't know, be, be like the, the lookout. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, in 1915, the couple were forced to leave England after de Curler was deported <laughs> following his conviction for practicing fortune telling, which is apparently oh, then was, was illegal. illegal. Hmm. Yeah. So um, they subsequently lived a, and the word is a peripatetic existence. I know that was Boy. from Wikipedia. I did not come up with that. Um, so they, they moved around a lot too. Uh, they lived in Paris, Cannes, Nice, Monte Carlo before leaving for America in the spring of 1916. Uh, almost immediately after their child, Maria Luisa Yvonne Radha, her nickname was Gogo. <laughs> uh, she was born in June 15th, 1920. De Curler moved out, leaving Scaparelli alone with their newborn daughter, and oh. uh, they never saw him again. Wow. Also, um, they finally divorced later, like 10 years later or something like mm-hmm. that. Maybe not even then. And then he was murdered in Mexico under suspicious circumstances. So hmm. no one knows how that happened. that life insurance policy. Right. That name was under... So, um, after that, she relied greatly on the emotional support offered her by her close friend, Gabrielle Gabby. Um, I'm going to say Buffet Picabia. She was the wife of um, Dada surrealist artist Francis Picabia. Um, She had first met her on board a ship during the transatlantic crossing to America in 1916. So, after de Curler deserted her and her daughter... Scaparelli returned to New York. Um, she was attracted to its spirit of fresh beginnings and cultural vibrancy. Uh, her interest in spiritualism translated into a natural affinity for the art of the Dada and the surrealist movements. Mm-hmm. And her friendship with Gabby Picabia facilitated the entry into the creative circle, which comprised noteworthy members such as Man Ray, mm-hmm. Marcel Duchamp, uh, Alfred Stieglitz, and Edward Steichen. So she was running in the circles yeah, right of like these mm-hmm. great modern artists who were just the hotness. So she was she was already rich. She was rich from her mother. Um, so she was fine in terms of money. And um, she just hung out with artists, which was kind of her deal anyway. Like from day one, she just wanted to, I don't know, lie on a chaise lounge and read. And talk to, yeah, salons, all that. So um, following the lead of Gabby Picabia and others, uh, she left New York for France in 1922. And upon her arrival, she took an expensive apartment in a fashionable quarter of the city, taking on the requisite servants, cook and maid. She was just like, I'm going to settle here now. Um, The self-made associations she formed over the years, along with the eminent social position held by her Italian family combined to ensure that she would be embraced by the desirable social circles on her return to France. (laughs) So she knew she was fine. Yeah. So she got to do whatever she wanted. So her design career was early on influenced by couturier Paul Poiret, um, who was renowned for uh, corseted overlong dresses. It was like this very like um, elegant kind of Russian look, mm. high-waisted. Um, and it was uh, freedom of movement for the modern, elegant, and sophisticated woman. So there wasn't a lot of, um, what's sort of looking for, like undergarments. There okay. was a lot of petticoats. Like totally restricted. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The underwear was a little bit looser. Um, so her method of approach relied on, uh, both impulse of the moment and the serendipitous inspiration as the work progressed. So she wasn't like, she wasn't a seamstress, but she would drape fabric directly on the body and sometimes use herself as a model. Okay. And, um, so she would like manipulate and drape under herself just to see how it would look. And apparently it worked like Mm. the results were very wearable. And while she was in Paris, Scaparelli, and they all her friends called her Scap. <laughs> That's a uh, pleasant she, nickname. Yeah. So she came. Yeah, it was pretty natural. Um, she began making her own clothes. And because she ran in these artistic circles, people were like, oh, my God, Elsa, Scappy, darling, what are you wearing? <laughs> um, so she started her own business because wow. Paul Poiret was like, you should do yeah. this. Um uh, it closed in 1926 b- despite favorable reviews, but she launched a new collection of knitwear, 
in early 1927 using a special stitch created by Armenian refugees. <laughs> you know, just like, darling, just bring in the Armenian refugees. Um, so her whole idea was these, she featured sweaters with this surrealist Trump wall image. Like these Trump images. Lawyer. Trump lawyer. I thought you said Trump wall. I was Trump wall. <laughs> Trump wall. <laughs> no, not that. Although her first designs appeared in Vogue, um, the business really took off with a pattern that gave the impression of a scarf wrapped around the wearer's neck, even oh, cool. though it was all just kind of built into the sweater. Mm-hmm. So um, it was called Pour Le Sport. And this collection expanded the following year to include bathing suits, ski wear, and linen dresses. So this like kind of like casual, like yeah. gale about town. Lady. Um, do stuff first exactly like I'm, I'm gonna have fun I have my own money um, so she added evening wear in 1931 and that's when it really like blew up took off mm-hmm. and she worked out of what she was calling the scap shop <laughs> isn't that cute <laughs> so she collaborated pretty frequently with uh, surrealist artists most famously with Salvador Dali mm. and she was the fa- favorite designer of Wallace Simpson who was of oh, course the wife yes. of Edward VIII another Nazi sympathizer just FYI um, her lobster dress, which was a beautiful columnar cream silk dress with a painting of a very realistic lobster near the hem. Oh. Um, Salvador Dali actually painted it. Oh, wow. Uh, was famously worn by Simpson in a photo taken shortly before her marriage. So Scap was the toast of the fashionable and modern 1930s. Um, she also did uh, a couple of her famous things where there was a dress that she made that had um like an it looked like an a woman's arm like wrapped around the waist and then um it would look like the top of a head at your shoulder (laughs) and then blonde hair coming down like there was a woman behind you very weird she also had something called the shoe hat which was essentially just a giant high-heeled shoe that you would wear like what looked like perched precariously on the edge of your head which is amazing (laughs) and um she also uh had the skeleton dress which was a very tight black long-sleeved high neck Mm -hmm. dress that had um white trapunto stitching which is like um like a padded stitching Mm -hmm. of um of a skeleton over it so it had bones so you had like the you had your sternum and your ribs <laughs> and then it was it went all the way down your arms and it was like you had the hip bones and everything it's so righteous so this is super like avant-garde for super this super avant-garde yeah because we were like just getting out of like wearing black and navy for everything yeah um but this was she was like the toast of the fashion mm-hmm. world but it wasn't no one besides people like Wallace Simpson who had mm-hmm. more money than sense were actually wearing this stuff. It was just kind of like an extension of the surrealist movement. Okay. So it was more art than anything, but she was still using shapes that were very fashionable at the time. Mm-hmm. So the 1930s, you have that bias cut, that very slim cut with the, you know, you wouldn't, and that was something you would not wear a bra with. It was just kind of like just second skin, very mm-hmm. thin, um, like spaghetti straps, very like, um, like draped back Mm. so you saw a lot of body so these shapes at least the general shapes were still very in fashion Mm. so she had a lot of crossover um so uh the incoming war unfortunately devastated the scap style and scaparelli closed her fashion house in 1954 um she died in 1973 very comfortably she wrote her autobiography retired to her apartment and died living a great life so in 2007, an Italian businessman named uh, Diego Della Valle acquired the brand, but it wasn't until Marco Zanini was appointed in September 2013 that the details of the brand's revival became public. So they're bringing Scaparelli mm. back. And actually, um, the house has been nominated for a return to the Chambre Syndicale um, and presented its first show since nomination in January 2014. And actually, currently, it is still it is considered an haute couture house oh. again. So... Chanel hated her and um, she would always throw shade at her. And my favorite is that um, whenever she would never say her name. Okay. Um, she would always just call her that Italian artist who makes clothes. It's like, Oh, shady bitch. So um, finally, just for this, for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to talk about Christian Dior. Christian Dior, the uh, Dior. purveyor of the new look. Dior. 
Uh, he was born a little bit later than Our Ladies, uh, 1905 in uh, Grand Vie, France, to wealthy parents. All these people were raised wealthy. <laughs> like, well, that's, it, you know. That's, it wasn't until a little bit later, or at least they had like wealthy patrons like, mm-hmm. uh, like Chanel. Uh, it wasn't until much later, like 20th century, that you started getting like poor people actually <laughs> rising, rising up. the ranks. Mm-hmm. So Christian Dior was raised to be a diplomat, but really wanted to be an artiste. Oh. And so to make money, he sold his fashion sketches outside his house for about 10 cents each. And in 1928, he left school and received money from his father to finance a small art gallery where he and a friend sold art by the likes of Pablo Picasso. Oh. Because he was very well connected. <laughs> you know, just a this yeah. up and comer. Little guy. May have heard of him, Pablo. So from 1937 on, Dior was employed by the fashion designer Robert. All right. You're going to have to help me with the okay. pronunciation of this. P-I-G-U-E-T. Pigo. 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 So Robert Pigo or Robert Pigo. He gave him the opportunity to design for three Pigo collections. And while he was at Pigo, Dior worked alongside Pierre Balmain, who was another couturier, and was succeeded as house designer by uh, Marc Bohan, who, as a matter of fact, would in 1960 become head of design for Christian Dior Paris. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. <laughs> Dior left uh, Pigo when he was called up for military service uh, during the war. And in 1942, when Dior left the army, he joined the fashion house of uh, Lucien Lelong, where he and Belmont were the primary de- designers. And for the duration of World War II, Dior as an employee of Lelong uh, designed dresses for the wives of Nazi officers and French collaborators. Hey, oh, more Nazis. Hmm. Um, as did other fashion houses that remained in business during the war. So it wasn't just Lelong. Okay. It was uh, Jean Petou did that and Jean Lavan girl and nina ritchie so a lot of ladies they really like those nazis well they had the ones with the money yeah i guess so so in 1940 uh, a successful entrepreneur known as the richest man in france his name was marcel boussac uh he invited dior to design for a paris fashion house that was launched in 1925 it was uh philippe Dior refused. He wished to make a fresh start under his own name rather than reviving an old brand. So on December 8th, 1946, with Broussac's backing, Dior founded his own fashion house. The actual name of the line of his first collection, this is good trivia, presented in February of 1947, was called Corolle. Corolle. Which is literally the botanical term uh, Corolla or circlet of flowers in English or circlet of flower petals, I should say. Um, but the phrase new look was coined for it by, uh, her name was Caramel Snow, the editor in chief of Harper's Bazaar. So Dior's designs, I'm going to describe it with my, I'm going to paint you a word picture, Julia, because this is a podcast and it's not a visual medium. So World War II styles, 1940s. So Mm -hmm. you think of like Barbara Stanwyck, you got yourself a square jacket nipped in waist. You got broad Mm -hmm. shoulders. You got like a, yeah, lapel. You got like a boxy, powerful lady look because all the boys are overseas and we're going to work, Mm -hmm. right? So 1947 comes the new look and the new look is this, you have this beautiful voluptuous top. So it's like a a roundish top Mm -hmm. with a teeny tiny little wasp waist. (laughs) So you got like that perfect hourglass Mm -hmm. and then a broad (laughs) skirt, Skirt. Mm -hmm. like a bell. Like a swing skirt. Exactly. That is a little bit shorter. It goes to about um, your mid calf. Mm. And it was worn and it was shown. And you've seen this picture of this woman like kind of bending very fashionably to the side. And she's wearing what looks like an upside down plate on her head. <laughs> you've seen it. <laughs> That's the new look hat. That's uh, very Dior. Yes. So um, it was his his designs were more voluptuous than the boxy fabric conserving shapes mm-hmm. of the recent World War II. So, um, you know, they there was rations on fabric so you know mm-hmm. that's why you had a shorter skirt on the 40s suits but Dior was like we're going to be rich and so fabulous so <laughs> they he used just tons of fabric wow. very expensive materials he uh, employed fabrics lined predominantly with percale they were boned so it was back oh. to this very tight rigid, rigid mm-hmm. undergarment it was a bustier style bodice um, and hip padding and wasp waisted corset so he was really trying to like emphasize this boobs wee little waist <laughs> and then he would even pad out the hips mm. of the jackets so that it would 
you would have that very dramatic change from right. tiny to like bam hips. Um, and he would he brought back petticoats too to make those that bell shape even more dramatic. So his girls had very curvaceous form. Um, initially, women protested because his designs covered up their legs. <laughs> which they had been unused to because of the previous limitations on fabric, but mm-hmm. there was also some backlash to Dior's designs due to the amount of fabrics used in a single dress or suit. Oh, People were like, you're wasteful. Um, so apparently one during one photo shoot in a Paris market, the models were attacked by female vendors oh my. over this particular fabric waste. <laughs> um, but opposition ceased as warm t- wartime shortages ended. Mm-hmm. So this new look revolutionized women's dress and it reestablished Paris as the center of the fashion world after World War II. So we can, we can credit Christian Dior for really bringing back Paris as a couture oh, center. The savior of Paris. He was. He was the savior of Paris. So very sadly, though, mm. Christian Dior, this is good, good to remember. Dior. Christian Dior. Dior. Uh, the house began in 1947. Mm-hmm. In 1957, almost exactly 10 years later, he died while in holiday on holiday uh, in Montecatini, Italy, in uh, October of 1957. Okay, so here's the here's the drama for your mama. Ready? Some reports say that he died of a heart attack after choking on a fishbone. Times <laughs> obituary stated that he died of a heart attack after playing a game of cards. However, one of Dior's acquaintances, the Paris socialite Baron de Raid. Red Rede wrote in his memoirs that the contemporary rumor was that the heart attack had been caused by a strenuous sexual encounter. You wouldn't want that to be reported in the news. I know, right? So, well, that's the thing. As of 2017, the exact circumstances of Dior's death remain undisclosed, mm. which makes me think it's either sex or he choked on a fishbone. Like, how embarrassing is that, right? So, um, like he I was. Said, I'm. I, I'm it's going to be really bad when I go out like on a grape. Like, you know. <laughs> Wait, are you going to like step on a grape? And no, sl- like oh. that's what my like choking hazard <laughs> really is. I probably choke on a grape like once a month. Easy. Oh, no. I'm oh going to have to start cutting them in half. You know what? <laughs> I choke on my own spit more often. Like I sometimes when I'm home alone and I'm, yeah. I'm like. I just take too deep of a breath yep. when I've got too much spit in my mouth or something. Not to be gross. And I start coughing, like yeah. coughing so hard. I'm like, this is how I go. Yep. They're going to think that I was murdered because there's going to be no evidence. <laughs> like Lauren just choked to death on nothing. The, the room is locked from the inside. <laughs> there's this puddle of water. I know, drool everywhere. What happened? <laughs> it's terrible. So <laughs> sorry. All right. No, no, he please, might have choked totally on okay. a fishbone. He may have choked on a fishbone. Um, he probably died from having sex, probably with a man. Mm. I mean, I, I, I don't so know. So Coco also would have hated him. Coco probably would have hated him. I'm sure she did. I mean, he was like up and coming and she knew about him. So that was a thing. But either way, um, he, because of his dramatic sudden death, he was only 52 when he died. Mm. So he had many more years ahead of mm-hmm. time. Um, he was succeeded by a uh, fashion prodigy and 21 year old Yves Saint Laurent ah. in 1958. Yves Saint Laurent. So uh, Saint Laurent uh, was only at Dior for two years, 58 to 60, when he struck out on his own mm. and started his mm-hmm. own very important couturier sure. fashion house. And then he was succeeded by Mark Bohan, as mentioned earlier, mm. in 1960. And Mark Bohan was at Dior for years and years and years, mm. like 25 years. So he really created the modern Dior look. And a lot of people don't realize that because the new look was such a revolution. Mm-hmm. That, um, so Christian Dior was kind of the, I guess, like the, um, like the grandfatherly figure, this kind of like godlike figure that everyone Mm -hmm. like reveres, but it was Mark Bohan that was like on the ground doing the, the, the work that made Dior what Dior is. Um, so yeah, so I think I'm definitely going to do this. Uh, I'm going to do some more fashion designers again because these people have lived crazy lives. Yeah, and we've all heard of them, but we don't really know, yeah. you know, who's behind it or, you know, maybe what exactly they're known for. And exactly. St- stuff like that comes yeah. up. Yeah, it comes up. It comes up in, and fashion, whether you like it or not, whether you like clothes, everyone has to wear them. And they are the most, <laughs> <laughs> that's true, we do live in a society. And clothing is the most intimate form of art that you, mm-hmm. that is like socially acceptable. Mm-hmm. So it's 
it's stuff that you put on your body and you, that's what, um, that's what you, that's the story you tell to people without opening your mouth at any point. And that's why I'm sitting here in a long sequined, um, gold dress. You know, I wasn't going to say anything, but you look amazing. Thank you. Can I tell you? Thank you. I can barely look at you. This is my Sunday evening dress. (laughs) The sequins, Sunday evening sequins. Gold sequins. Gold sequins. It's great. Um, so now I'm going to, uh, give you a quick 10 question quiz right. called fashion kills Ooh. Yes, a quiz on murder and fashion. Question number one. In 1997, fashion designer Gianni Versace was do- shot dead outside of his home in Miami, Florida, along with four other innocent bystanders across several States. Who was the perpetrator of that crime? Who, in fact, will be played by Darren Chris in an upcoming TV miniseries? Question number two. Discoverer of Alexander McQueen and the toast of the fashion world for years, this wealthy socialite and muse of hat designer Philip Tracy tragically committed suicide in 2007 by drinking weed killer. Question number three. A white pigment used most famously by Queen Elizabeth I made the wearer's skin extraordinarily pale and was extraordinarily poisonous. What is this pigment? Question number four. Which which fashion designer committed career suicide in 2011 after video of him drunkenly making anti-Semitic comments to tourists in Paris? Question number five. Speaking of career suicide, Lindsay Lohan partnered with what equally embattled fashion house to design their spring collection in 2010? Reviewers called the debut disastrous. Question number six. Which lover and patron of Coco Chanel died in a horrific motorcycle accident in 1919? The company later dedicated a handbag and a lipstick color to him, calling them after his nickname. Question number seven. While it couldn't kill you, Scaparelli's favorite color was, shall we say, electric. What was this color called? Question number eight. Designer Oleg Cassini was the favorite fashion designer of what high-style woman of the 1960s and 70s? Question number nine. One of the the first legendary hairdressers in recorded history was known by one name, Leon. He dressed the hair of what doomed aristocrat every single day of her life? And finally, question number 10. What legendary British designer and creator of the cheeky bum pant committed suicide in 2010? We'll give you a minute to think about it, and then we'll be back with answers. Okay, here's some answers. Gianni Versace was shot dead outside his home in Miami, Florida. Who was the perpetrator of this crime? Andrew Cunanan. Very good. Andrew Cunanan. Um, that is going to be the next um, American crime oh, right. story or something. Yeah, it looks good. Yeah, it does look good. Because I want to see Darren Chris do more things on television. Right? He's so good. And he's got a voice of an angel. Um, question number two, discoverer of Alexander McQueen in the toast of the fashion world for years, which socialite and fashionable lady committed suicide in 2007 by drinking weed killer. I don't know. Her name was Isabella Blow and she was wonderful. Can I just say she was just crippled by anxiety and depression, but she was so fashionable and she was such a lovely person. Weed killer though. I know it was really bad. There's a lot of other things. She told her friends that she was going to go shopping. She was like, I'm going shopping. Bye guys. And then they found her in the bathroom. Like she had like collapsed and her sister, um, revived her while they were waiting for the mm-hmm. for the ambulance and the last words that she said to her sister was I'm afraid I haven't drunk enough Aww. I know isn't that awful Isabella Blow Isabella Blow you should look her up she was great mm-hmm. 
Uh, question number three, a white pigment used by Queen Elizabeth I. Uh, what made you extraordinarily pale and also made you extraordinarily dead? What is that pigment? Arsenic. No, it was lead white. <sighs> yeah. very. Oh, it's a good guess, though. Mm. Good guess. Um, so which fashion designer committed career suicide in 2011 after a video of him drunkenly making anti-Semitic comments to tourists in Paris? For some reason, I can picture like piece of the video, but I can't bring his name back it was uh it was very shocking it was uh john galliano galliano yes and he's back actually because mm. he is now the head fashion designer of maison margiela oh and it's very you know it's very experimental and i'm not a huge fan of maison margiela i'm not a huge fan of john galliano to begin with because uh he's a crazy anti-semite but you know i guess if you can design beautiful things um somebody you're old. back and mm-hmm. all is forgiven so uh a lot of anti-semitism in the and fashion Nazi world. sympathizing in the fashion world. Hmm. That's weird. Um, so, okay, question number five. Speaking of career suicide, Lindsay Lohan partnered with what equally embattled fashion house to design their spring collection in 2010? Is it Juicy Couture? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It may as well it may have well have been because it was Emmanuel Angaro. So uh, Angaro was gone for a while and then they wanted to rebrand and like mm. they, they were purchased by, the company was purchased by somebody, yeah. some guy. And um, somebody's dumb idea was to be like, who's the hotness right now? <laughs> Lindsay Lohan. She's been arrested a bunch of times. Yeah. And she loves fashion, so maybe she can design it. It was mm. truly terrible. I can show you pictures. Wow. It was just a lot of mini skirts and like heart pasties. Oh. And like really. You know, just for like everyday wear. <laughs> yeah. Just sheer mesh shirts with heart pasties. These poor girls, like these poor models just like clomping down the runway. You could tell. They were just one big eye <laughs> roll. Did not. They did not oh, want any terrible. part of that. So it was very disastrous. And that was the first and last time Lindsay Lohan mm. um, entered into fashion designing. <laughs> so question number six, which lover and patron of Coco Chanel died in a horrific motorcycle accident in 1919? Do you know? It was Arthur Capel. It was Arthur Boy oh. Capel. So there is a handbag called the Boy Bag. Mm. And um, recently, I think the past couple of years, there's a lipstick color that the Chanel makeup end created and it's called boy and it is probably the most flattering movie pink you've ever seen (laughs) in your whole life and if i had an extra i don't know 75 (laughs) dollars to spend on a lipstick i would 100 percent do it because it would look so you weren't gonna like lose (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah that i'm definitely gonna it's gonna roll out of my handbag one day and i'm gonna kick myself okay question number seven while it couldn't kill you scaparelli's favorite color was shall we say electric what was the color called i don't know it's called shocking pink Oh, so it's not certainly not the first instance mm-hmm. of um, like hot neon pink being a thing yeah. in fashion. She was the one who kind of made it like fresh and new Ooh. again, like shocking pink. <laughs> and I think there's a musical. It may have been the women. I don't remember, but it's a uh, it's like a fictionalization of the fashion world. And there's a woman who is Scaparelli or is like a oh. ca- Scaparelli mm-hmm. equivalent. And she sings a song about pink. It's called Wear Pink. It's very cute. <laughs> Um, so question number eight, designer Oleg Cassini was the favorite fashion designer of what high style woman of the sixties and seventies? I do not know. Jackie Onassis. Aww. So, uh, Pe- Oleg Cassini, Oleg Cassini was the guy who made all of her clothes. So mm-hmm. you think of Jackie O, you think of those cute little box jackets and little short, uh, skirts mm-hmm. and a little pillbox hat, all that stuff. And then like flowy 1970s things that she wore later when she was married right. to um, Onassis. Mm. As it turns out, Eli Cassini was a fraud. He <gasps> uh, would copy the designs of a lot of famous. So the the little like boxy jacket and skirt yeah. that was 100% Chanel. But right. Eli Cassini okay. just like completely stole it. Mm. And all of the 1970s stuff that was all Helston. It was all Helston <laughs> heritage and Yves Saint Laurent. But and I don't want, I don't know why no one caught on. <laughs> But I think it was because he was um, he was working in America. Yeah, okay. Something along those lines. The internet oh, wasn't around Oleg. back Oleg. I know. Jeez, Oleg. So, uh, number nine. One of the first legendary hairdressers in recorded history was known by Leon. He dressed the hair of what doomed aristocrat? Is that Marie Antoinette? It is Marie Antoinette. So, um, he would dress... he, And I could just imagine just like this giant... Just, just fabulous man who just would you know, tease up her hair with all sorts of gross things. This is another thing that we could talk about in a, a future podcast, yeah. but they would use like fats and powders. Glue. Yeah. And, fats yep. and powders to like dr- make their hair. 
And because she was so rich and because that's all he did, mm-hmm. um, he would do her hair every day. So he would spend hours and hours and hours making like her hair into the ocean and <laughs> yes. putting ships, ships on it. Yeah. yeah. And then at the end of the Small day, he would just squirrels. Yeah. And just wash it out and put her to bed. <laughs> and finally, <laughs> what legendary British designer and creator of the cheeky bum pant committed suicide in 2010? Is it Alexander McQueen? It was Alexander McQueen. So, what is a bum pant? So it was literally <laughs> a pant that, and it was, so fashion is also funny, right? Uh. So fashion can be fun and witty and make a comment about what's going on Mm. in the world. So he made the bum pant, which was a very low rise pant. So your like ass would stick out over the top and it wasn't meant to be worn by anybody, but it was a comment on like how sexualization of clothing has become like a huge thing. But then that's what uh, Victoria's secret and like Hollister set upon the world. Set early 2000s. Yeah. Unfortunately. Bend over in these pants. Yeah. So at the time it was kind of like a commentary, <laughs> like a cute wink, like no one would ever wear this. And then they did. They did. So, so that is my quiz <laughs> on fashion kills. I know it's kind of dark, but wow. But the fashion world no is dramatic. Idea. Yeah. There. Yeah. Again, there are a lot of those big names that you hear and you only hear it like on the red carpet or um, yeah. you'll see it in, in print, but it doesn't really like, doesn't mean it. Mean yeah, it anything. doesn't yeah. mean anything. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of times you don't even recognize um, them as people. You know, mm-hmm. like Chanel is Chanel. Now. Yeah, like it's run by Karl Lagerfeld, who's like the worst. He's the worst. I hope you're listening, Carl. You're the worst. <laughs> Carl, Carl you could tweet at us at <laughs> misinfopod if yeah. you want to settle this beef with Lauren. <laughs> I'll do it. I'll kick your ass, old man. <laughs> don't think I won't. You're your little um, cat too. <laughs> tiny cat. What was her name? Her cat has named something really French and dumb. It's like um, Poupette or something. <laughs> it's like, uh, it'll, I'll have an answer for you in the next yeah. episode. But um, like Julia said, if you uh, want to tweet at us, we are at Miss Infopod and our website is MissInfopod.com. And you could find us on iTunes, on Google Play and on Stitcher or wherever your RSS feed takes you. Yep. And please uh, subscribe and write us a good review. Um, every little bit helps. So we are happy to get good reviews from you. If you don't have a good review, keep it to yourself. Yeah. Cause like if my mother said something nice. Exactly. Don't, don't say, say anything, anything at, all. at all. Exactly. So on that <laughs> very positive note, uh, thank you for joining us. Yes. Thank you. We'll talk. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.